Happy Saturday and happy Halloween. It's October 30th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. And trick or treat. Trick or treat. Michael, what's the costume? I'm going as Iron Man. Oh, that's cool. Well, I'm just going trick or treating tomorrow. I'm not with the ki- with 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 uh, some kids that uh, haven't invited me to go. So I was told by one of them, uh, she she picked my costume. Said you're because they're all being superheroes. Said you will have to be Iron Man. So I like when my costume is picked for me. How about you? Yeah, that's nice. It makes life easier. I'm going as a witch mainly because it's not excessively high concept. And you know, with Halloween, I feel like some. I admire the people who can do those tricky, involved, intricate costumes, but inevitably I'm just ordering a velvet cape on Amazon at midnight, and that's what we're going to be. Yeah, it's uh, every year I walk around, especially down here in the village, where you've got the amazing village Halloween parade, and everyone draws everyone, and it must be nice because it didn't run last year, but I always take pictures of people like, oh, that's a great costume, and then, of course, like... The next year, I'm like, eh, you know, but you see the, the, the imagination of the city down here, for sure. The village is where it's at on Halloween. What's your candy this year? Those squid game cookies. Oh, God. Gross! I don't know. What are you giving out? I don't know. I'm usually like a Reese's Peanut Butter Cups type of person, because then that way I can eat half of them myself and feel totally justified. When you were a kid, what was the candy you didn't want to get? Anything that's going to like cause me to lose a filling, whether it's a Tootsie <laughs> Roll or a Tootsie Roll Pop. It, you know, something excessively sticky is never a good thing. Yeah, where you just, unless you were eight years old and needed to pull like a tooth out, but when you got a little older, no, you didn't want to do that. Totally. Okay, trick or treat. What do you want to start with? Tricks. Then file this story under the thong remains the same. I'm talking about our great story this week by Rosie Kinchin about the fascinating true story of the most famous strip club for women, Chippendales. This is a trick and a treat. I guess. So this does not constitute a treat for me. Have you ever been to a strip club? Of course I've been to a strip club. I know that this is not very, like, woke and empowered in 2021 of me to say, but I find them to be among the more depressing places in the universe. And, like, always – we took one of my friends, one of my male friends there for his birthday probably 10 years ago, and we always thought it was, like, going to be so much fun. And, like, let me tell – like, by the end of the night, I was having an existential crisis, the likes of which I'd never seen before. Well, this is uh, – you look, if you've, if you've – watched Magic Mike or uh, The Full Monty, you kind of know, or even Hustlers, which was the female version of things uh, from uh, uh, a couple years ago. But look, Chippendales, as Rosie writes, is, you know, it was the all-male strip act with huge hair and tiny thongs. Um, and But this this later this month, it's going to be coming to Amazon Prime. It's a documentary series, Curse of the Chippendales. And what's the curse? Well, the story is all the ingredients of a hit. Sex, lust, money, murder, uh, even an attempted assassination of two male strippers. And the docuseries revisits all this unique moment in sexual politics when working women of the 80s were granted freedom, some people say, to behave like men and grabbed it with both perfectly manicured hands, as Rosie Kinchin writes. Wow. You know, I think that, you know, maybe Chippendales is the exception, but in general, I find that these places look an awful lot better on TV than they do in real life. But this is for you, dear reader, to decide. Well, it's a riveting story. You know, it was founded by this guy, uh, an immigrant to the U.S., Steve Banerjee, who was pursuing the American dream, and he had this idea to open a club. He was trying to fill it out. He called it Destiny 2. There was no Destiny 1 in 
Los, in West Los Angeles in the late 70s. He then hired this flamboyant choreographer, intelligent producer from New York, Nick Nadoya, who came up with all the dance routines. And by the mid-80s, there were Chippendale mugs, key rings, calendars, teddy bears. They were grossing $35 million a year. There was He was even fantasizing about having a Disneyland ride about Chippendales. Uh, it soon turned sour in the late 80s. Denoya was assassinated in his office. Someone shot him dead in the head. It took years to, to figure out what had happened. The thing sort of became a punchline eventually, but it's a great, fun piece, a bit of a trick and a treat, as I like to say. Yeah, like fun fact, who knew that the brand Chippendales was actually named after the 18th century British cabinet maker. I always thought that was a weird coincidence. Turns out it was totally deliberate because Banshee thought that it sounded aspirational. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we have a, we're getting into a real niche here at Airmail. It's like last week, Fabio, this week, Chippendales. What's next? I don't know. We'll just have to surprise our listeners. Okay, okay. Stay tuned. We've got more on the male heartthrob beat coming to you in a future issue. For sure. All right, Michael, we're going to be moving on from nearly naked men to nearly naked women. We've got Flora Gill on. She tried on Kylie Jenner's bathing suit line, so we we wouldn't have to, thank goodness, because uh, no way in hell am I putting on a thong bikini. Flora's a very, very funny writer uh, based in London, and we've got her on the line here to tell us all about the sheer hell that she experienced in the name of journalism. Welcome, Flora. Flora, thank you for taking one for the team here and trying these on so we don't have to. Anything I can do. There's been a lot of hullabaloo about uh, Kylie and her bathing suits online, especially on TikTok. How did you first get tied into the story? Well, I was quite curious, to be honest. There's been a lot, as you said, written and videoed and TikToked about it. A lot of people quite angry about the quality of the swimsuits and also just about whether or not they cover everything they're supposed to be covered, the things most people assume will be covered by swimsuits. Um, But what I found surprising was that the ones that were getting the worst reviews aren't even available to purchase because they've all sold out. All the one-piece swimsuits are already already sold out. Everyone's bought them all, which just shows kind of the power of Kylie's brand despite these reviews and despite the odd time of year that they were released. Um, So I went for a bikini and was... I want to say disappointed, but was unsurprised. Actually, that's not true. I think I was surprised by how much I agreed with with the reports. Now, Flora, what does your normal swimsuit look like when you're? If we were to find you on a beach on a hot day in August, what would you be wearing? I mean, I think I, I think I wear bikinis. I wear swimsuits. I don't think I have one particular style. I'm I'm open to a lot. The one thing that I cannot get on board with, and again, this is very in keeping with all of Kylie's bikinis, all the bikinis she wears, is I hate this whole, I want to call it a wedgie trend, the trend of having your bikini eaten by your behind. I, I, I just don't think, I don't think, to be frank, I don't think I have the bottom anymore. I've noticed like, even before Kylie's swimsuit line came on, I spent a lot of time looking at clothing as part of my job as the style editor here at Vermeil. But um, I've noticed that like, I, I don't know if there's a lot of like MDMA being consumed by swimsuit designers, but whatever the collections were looking like this year, it was completely bizarre. It's like either swimsuits were non-existent you know, it's like a piece of dental floss basically holding yourself together. Or it's a super complicated thing involving like lurex and ruffles and multiple layers. Like, I don't even know how you get in and out of these things. They're not really meant for swimming, right? No, they're not meant for swimming. They're meant for sitting by the pool and taking a photo. And there's nothing wrong with that. Look, I've got no issue. It's not like when I go buy a swimsuit, I go for the most streamlined, efficient one to improve my swimming. We all know we, we still want to look good by the pool, but there are so many of these swimsuits you actually just can't get wet in, which seems to be one step too far. You know, I still want to be able 
to bomb into the pool if I want to without it going completely transparent. I like watching Love Island. Do you watch Love Island? Do you get Love Island in the States? I don't know how big it is there. It's nowhere near as big as it is over uh, over by you. That's when I can really see the new trends and it's always a different part of often a different piece of flesh I didn't know we were supposed to be showing in our swimsuits like a lot of under boobs seem to be on last season just all all mostly like is this bikini supposed to show under boob or is it just four sizes too small and I'm bursting out of it so when you put on these Kylie Jenner swimsuits what was the experience like like how, how did you feel differently about yourself when you were wearing one of them I felt like I had just way too much bush is my first thought. It's just, there's, <laughs> there's no room for hiding anything. It's, I mean, I, w- I would say you couldn't even have, have a Brazilian. I think it's got to be a full Hollywood. It, there's so much, there's so much on display. And the weirdest thing I found was that the actual material that connects the, the back from the front, like, I'd never really considered that that would change size, whether you were wearing a swimsuit or a bikini or a micro bikini, but even that is smaller than regular bikinis, which just is such an odd decision to make. It's, it's kind of exclusionary. Oh my God, funny. Are you a Je- Kardashian-Jenner, uh, are you a fan? Are you a follower? Do you look at it for the train wreck aspect of it? Yeah, I would say I'm a fan. I mean, I'm just in awe of the whole brand. I don't religiously watch Keeping Up With The Kardashians. I never have. Um, But I just think, I think they're pretty impressive people. And I kind of obsessively will click on any article that mentions them. I I don't want to say I just follow for the train wreck because I don't just want their lives to fall apart. I, I, I I would prefer to have a nice bikini. I'd prefer to see them succeed. But there is something, you know, we... There is something a bit addictive about it all, about drama. Flora, you've done a lot of intriguing things in the name of journalism and, and alerting your readers to the reality of some of these trends. Can you talk us through, I believe you went naked for a week, right? Or something like that. We ran another story of yours in which you were nude. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, that was uh, about how during lockdown there'd been an increase in the popularity of nudism. Uh particularly because people were just stuck at home, didn't see the need to put on a uniform or go outside. And I think it's just a social thing to do. You know, you start thinking, why am I buying and wearing all these clothes? So I spent a week living as a nudist. But what was interesting is it because it was over lockdown, it was doing it mostly through Zooms and through Skypes and through uh, interactions virtually naked, which, you know, usually I'd expect to get paid quite a lot of money for that kind of screen time but here I was doing it for free or paying for classes and um, it was definitely an experience I actually thought it was kind of lovely in the end I expected it to be full of weird perverts looking from you know the corner of their sitting room and with their hands in places I couldn't see but it wasn't like that at all it's just quite nice people that quite like being naked and most of it was just really normal you know a, a book a book club chat but you all happen to be naked and uh, and then you know the the weirdest one is naked yoga and uh, the naked the naked exercise classes because you know there's a lot of bouncing some sometimes clothes are needed but less washing up less sweating so that was a benefit how did your boyfriend feel about that week he found it quite funny i think he's kind of learnt to put up with a lot of the weird things that i have to do for journalism and a lot of my weird articles i kind of just tell him they're happening i don't i don't ask for permission or anything but when he came back and found me kind of in a downward facing dog in the sitting room. I think he, he thought it was he thought it was a bit odd. I think he was a bit excited for a moment, thought thought maybe I was trying some new thing, waiting for him, but he, he got the door pretty pretty quickly slammed on him. I love it. 
to go back to the the news angle of this, Kylie Jenner, you're right, Flora. I mean, she's, what, she's 24 years old. She's worth reportedly $700 million. And it's astounding what this family and now this newest fembot uh, in, in, in the Kardashian line has created. but uh, And yet, it seems to be impervious to quality, right? It's just like it's all this what's on the surface, and then it goes from there, right? Yeah, I do think that can only go so far, though. I think all her fans are willing to buy the products for now, but particularly because they have built a reputation already and she's built a name for her brand. I think she's I think she's now a billionaire, isn't she? The young youngest self-made billionaire. But that can only last so long. If Kylie keeps attaching her name to rubbish, to tat, people will stop. It it won't go on forever. There's not not every influencer has the power to have everything sold out. And I think I think she needs to be really careful that she doesn't continue to associate her name with poor products. I mean, her, her lip kits were very successful, but because people liked them and she's ridden that for a while, she can't ride it forever. You know, I feel like one of the reasons she's so rich is because the margins on her products have got to be insane. Like, surely there can't be more than 20 to 22 cents worth of fabric in these bathing suits. And yeah, what are they, <laughs> what are they selling for, Flora? The bathing suits, yeah, the bikinis are $40 each half. And then the other ones are the swimsuits, I think, at $80 each. So to be honest, I wouldn't have been so flabbergasted if they hadn't cost so much because they're quite, they're, I mean, they're similar in quality to a lot of very cheap bikinis, but those bikinis are very cheap. So I don't know what's going on with the rest of the, rest of the where the rest of the cost is going because, again, she can just do all her marketing. She has such a big base of loyal followers. The marketing is incredible because I did look at the website and for for the for the bathing suits and I mean talk about just creating a whole world where you're like oh it's um, the website was almost like a show about bikinis and swimsuits. It's good to know you can mix and match. If I only want the bottoms, I can just get the bottoms. Who knew? Yeah, go for it. Just get the bottoms. I'm not sure that they'll fit you. <laughs> mm, that's the maybe that's our next article. <laughs> God, <laughs> Flora, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your great story. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm going to tell you something embarrassing, Michael. I actually like skims, and so do most women I know. Why is that embarrassing? I've heard people love them. People love it. You're like, I've heard people love it. I mean... That's what I have heard, that it's, it's you know, the people really do like them. Well, it's so, so strange because I'm like, where am I supposed to be wearing this shapewear? They're always recommending you wear it, like, for cozy afternoon around the house. I'm like, this is weird. But um, I, I bought some of their underwear once, and it cut off circulation so badly that I stood up and I was lightheaded. So don't recommend that. But um, I like their turtlenecks. Hmm. Turtlenecks. Didn't even know they had them. They've got cozies and they've got turtlenecks, Michael. They've got it all. I'm not the only one that loves skims, as anyone who's gotten within spitting distance of a fashion magazine has seen this week. Kim Kardashian is partnering up with Fendi on a Skims Fendi collection. Intriguing. That's your daily dose of fashion news. We'll spare you from talking about anything else. So, Michael, on to slightly headier matters. If you want to be a Republican, we do have the questionnaire for you. Now, we're going to get a lot of hate mail off of this, and that's just fine. Bring it on, as we say. Uh, Bruce Fierstein have written a quiz about what it takes to be a Republican these days. It's very funny. Okay, we should preface this by saying not all Republicans are evil, just some of them. Here's an example of a question. Where did you first hear about the Republican Party? At home, on TV, or God himself spoke to me. 
in the event that Don J. Trump does not run in 2024, which Trump will you support for the presidency? Don Jr., Ivanka, Tucker Carlson, the My Pillow guy, or Barron? Okay, so this is just an example. If you need a laugh, it's very funny. Send it to your friends. They'll love you forever. Hmm. What is, speaking of Donald Trump, I'm going to a serious note here for a second. It's not in the issue, but we've talked about it quite a bit this week. What do you make about, and my link here is Alec Baldwin, who played Donald Trump. Uh, what's your take on the, on, on the tragedy down in New Mexico with Baldwin? You know, we've talked a lot about this, and there's so much tragedy on every side of this. And I guess my first takeaway was such an absurd, nightmarish scenario, right, where you have a loss of life coming from a failed attempt to shoot a Western movie. I mean, it's just like the whole thing is so crazy, but it's so strange to me how Alec Baldwin really always finds himself to be in the center of controversy. Like this is a especially horrific type. Like this makes his meltdowns over a parking meter seem really insignificant, but I really feel for the guy actually. I think what a horrible legacy to have to carry around with you for the rest of your life. I mean, in addition to this really lovely and talented young cinematographer who was killed uh, and the director who was injured, like I, I think Alec Baldwin, this is a quite a psychic load to to bear. And there were a lot of people who screwed up on this, a lot of people with blood on their hands. And I think now we're just seeing all these details come out. But I don't know where Alec Baldwin goes from here. And Maybe I'm the last person to know this, but this is what I... Okay, it's 2021, and you find out, like in a world of Hollywood CGI, and they've got special effects for everything, that they still, on set, are basically shooting live rounds that have been slightly altered, where they put cotton in them, but they're basically still shooting a gun with a, with a round in it. And, like, what? I mean, they're, st- they're still making Western like it's... A hundred years ago, and Tom Mix is riding a, a horse, and it's a silent movie era. Like, how are how is this possible? In in a hundred years of movies that they're in twenty first century, like they haven't figured out a better way. Maybe it's just typical American gun laws, but like <laughs> the gun lobby has gotten to. But it's how is it possible that they're still basically that thought that this is still a good idea to basically use a doctored live round for a film because what it's more authentic to get the the kickback and, and the firing of the gun. I don't get that. Yeah, it's completely backwards, isn't it? It's so strange. I mean, think of all the things they managed to do with CGI, and then they still think that you need like a live gun on a set when it could be misused and mishandled, and it could be accidentally detonated. And there are so many opportunities for tragedy here. And but. Still, there are a lot of people responsible for this. And it sounds like there were no, you know, there should be several layers of precautions enacted when you're dealing with dangerous things like firearms. And it just seems like there was absolutely none of that. And this complete carelessness around human life, like there will be people held responsible as they should be. Well, we will be following it. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of good books, Michael, that we should be reading and talking about this week. We have a marvelous review of Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child, which is the new book from Harvey Harvey Kubernick and Kenneth Kubernick about the life and times of Jimi Hendrix. And Sheila Weller reviews it in the issue this week. So many facts and figures about this guy that I just, I didn't really understand. You know, I, I guess I didn't fully understand what a complete workaholic Hendrix was and how disciplined he was about his craft. It gives you some real insight into his songwriting process and the way that he was reviewed and understood during his own time, as well as as this reflection back on what his music really meant. I think what's so compelling about this book for me is it's an oral history. So you just hear all these people talking about him and you get these, you know, everyone's got that mosaic of detail, that that accretion of detail that sort of adds up to a three-dimensional view of him that you just, even if you think you know Hendrix, you don't know him like this. He was a 
played his mother's broomstick until he had money for a real guitar, uh, joined the 101st Airborne Division, dropped out of that. Then he sort of became a counterculturalist as well. So I think a guy who is impossible to categorize, rightly so, and yet this book, I think, takes in the surprising sweep uh, and, and beauty of his of his life, which sadly uh, ended far too young at 27. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another marvelous essay we have on a new book is by Andre Leon Talley. Andre is such a gift to work with because whenever you send him, you know, a galley of something in the fashion space, he has such incredible insight because he lived through these times and was such an integral fixture in them. So Andre tackles a new book called Carl No Regrets, which was written by Patrick Corcade. Uh, Patrick Corcade was a very close friend of Carl Lagerfeld's for about 25 years. He was also the very well-respected one-time creative director of Paris Vogue and an expert in 18th century furnishings and art. And he and Carl really bonded over their mutual love of the 18th century. And they bought many, many things together and furnished many, many homes together. Uh, And Andre takes us back into this world in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in Paris and talks about, you know, what Carl's life and legacy was like at that time. You know, he was such a big personality as a designer. And we we remember him for his over-the-top runway shows and his newsworthy proclamations. But at the end of the day, he was a very complicated figure who had extremely uh, tempestuous relationships in his life and had many fallings out with those closest to him. So Andre takes us into several of these. And it's just an incredibly <laughs> shocking, frankly, and illuminating uh, look at that particular period of fashion history. Yeah, it's great. Great piece of writing by Andre. Two things to contribute here about Carl Lagerfeld. Please. One, I may have told you this before, but I once was standing behind him at a show. I think it was at the uh, the Balmain show he came to in Paris a few years ago. Before, you know, obviously when he was still alive, and I was standing near him, uh, right behind him, waiting to uh, speak with the, the designer, and. Um, Lots of dandruff on his shoulders. Well, as you learned from Andre's piece, he never allowed his hair to be touched by water. His barber gave him a very specific powder that he used in his hair to keep it, you know, to keep that virtuoso white pomp that he had. Okay, so may- maybe it was a special French powder. I thought it was dandruff. I, what am I? I'm just a rube. But, you know, <laughs> still, you know, you think the manservant would somehow like dust off that, that jacket uh, quite more often. Um, <laughs> my second Karl Lagerfeld thing, if you, if you are a fan of Karl Lagerfeld, I just want to bring it to your attention, everyone. In December, there, are, there it's going to be in Monaco and also in Paris on two separate dates. Karl Lagerfeld's estate is being auctioned off by Sotheby's. Oof, ooh, now that is something I'd like to attend. So uh, I think it's December 3rd, 4th in Monaco and December 14th, 15th in Paris. So maybe... Maybe I'll see if I'm going to go online and see if there's a little little dandruff brush uh, that might be a I can that he had I don't know but anyway if you're looking for something of Dirk Kaiser go to check it out. You know, as I was reading Andre's review, I thought there really needs to be a Karl Lagerfeld film. You know, we've got the Gucci movie coming out in just a few short weeks. Michael, we'll be there. We have got the Gucci film. We we had the Halston uh, um, uh, uh, Netflix um, uh, limited series. I'm sure someone's got to be hard at work at that, right? I mean, I, I somebody's got to be. I would love to see who they decide to cast as like a, a 1970s young Carl. You know who would play the old Car- Carl in my mind? I don't know why it just came to me. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe in suede boots with lifts and a pompadour? I am here for this. Fascinating. All right. Speaking of French royalty and all things French regal, will you take me now 
to Versailles and Alex Sobrano's column this week on the food and wine. I always feel so indulgent and superficial talking about these Alex Sobrano stories because everyone is just about like the joy and the pleasure of life, always with hid- plenty of hidden context and meaning, of course. But I do think Alec has one of the most uh, charmed existences of any journalist. Uh, he takes us to Versailles. And he takes us to dinner with Alan Duquesse, who, you know, this is a story we've been following here at Airmail very closely. But Alan Duquesse was relieved of his duties at the Hotel Plaza Athenee in Paris this summer. Much to the shock of the food world, he has resurfaced with another restaurant at Versailles, a new one. Um, And as Alec writes, it's truly spectacular. If you're in the mood for a multi-course tasting menu, which I never am, but still, Uh, They are ready to take you and they'll take you on a fabulous journey full of food that is, no joke, inspired by something that the Sun King himself might have enjoyed. What I treasure much about Alex's piece is the definition of allowing you to travel and experience vicariously. Uh, uh, I always feel like I'm right at the table with him. And uh, this one is no exception with um, this menu, as you said. Go read it. And if you can, go to it and taste it. Yeah, it sounds, it sound, or actually, you don't even need to. That's the beauty of the story, is Alex done it for us. Like, I'll continue to eat my low key bistro meal at Chez L'Ami Jean, but I really enjoy reading about Alec taking us out here to Versailles. But um, one of the quotes I love from this story, which I kind of want to frame and put on my wall, is uh, something that Alan Duquesne said as, as the guests were sitting down to dinner. He says, Beauty and quality are the remedies for an age of ugliness. Ha! <laughs> Embroider that on a needlepoint pillow. Put that on your on your sweatshirt. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Michael, we do want to go to Versailles. We don't want to go to the Grand Hotel Scarborough, which is in Britain's North Sea. It's apparently the worst hotel in the world, and Stuart Heritage had the unfortunate job of taking us there this week in the issue. Michael, we have him here now. Stu Heritage, welcome to the show. Hello. So, Stu... You really have taken on some tough assignments in the name of journalism. Uh, you once got Botox, as I recall, and now you've gone to the worst hotel in the world. So thank you for your service. Oh, you're welcome. It's. Uh, I feel like if anything I've done in my career is going to win me an award. It's uh, enduring the Grand Hotel Scarborough. So tell us, uh, first of all, had you heard of this place before? I think Graydon assigned it to you, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if I've done something wrong. To, to, to warrant it. I'd never actually heard of it before. I've been to Scarborough is 300 miles from my home. I went there once when I was a teenager and I can't remember anything about it. So I didn't really know anything about the, uh, the Grand Hotel. For those of us who, who have not traveled to the North Country of Britain, so correct me if I'm wrong, it's on Britain's North Sea. It opened in 1867. That's right. At that point, it was this cathedral, as you say, for wealthy Victorian holidaymakers who wanted to sample the mineral-rich waters of the North Yorkshire Resort. Churchill stayed there. One of the Brontes died there. As you say, even Hitler harbored dreams of making it his own private palace. Yes, yeah. It has fallen on very hard times, which is where you came in, right? Yeah, it sounds like it was once a really beautiful hotel. It was. Uh, they got a Parisian hotel manager to, to oversee it when it opened. It's shaped like the letter V for Victoria, for Queen Victoria. It had 365 rooms, one for every day of the year. It was this beautiful sort of temple to kind of Victorian holiday making. But what happened was sort of uh, foreign holidays became a popular thing. And so people were started to go on holiday to Spain or Portugal or Italy or just anywhere in Europe that the, where the weather was nicer than Scarborough, which is most places in the world. <laughs> and as a result, the, sort of the bottom of the industry just fell out. 
When I went, I was expecting a lot worse than I got because the reports were blood smeared against the walls, dirty sheets. Stu, is this the right time to talk about the fact that you brought your young son, Herbie, (laughs) with you on this adventure? (laughs) We, we can talk about that. The plan was to take my entire family, but um, the morning uh, before we left, my wife actually looked at the reviews and flat out refused to go. So uh, in the end, it was me and my six-year-old, who, by the way, had a wonderful time. He had a wonderful time and he wants to go back. It's like it's one half Faulty Towers, one half uh, The Shining. It is. It has got very strong kind of The Shining vibes. <laughs> Here's an important question. Mm-hmm. Did you sleep in your clothes? <laughs> no, I didn't actually. Sometimes I've been in these motels. I'm like, I don't want to like talk about like the bed and she like, I, I'm just going to sleep in a chair because I don't even want to get in this bed. <laughs> I did. At one point, my son uh, started to uh, eat his dinner off the floor, off the carpet. And I very, very quickly put a stop to that because <laughs> I mean, God knows. Well, Stu, thanks so much for taking the airmail readers inside this iconic beacon of tourism. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, I believe if any, of, if any of your readers want to go, the rooms are very, very cheap. It has one virtue. I'm just looking online right now. There's a room that says that the prices in dollars start at $55. Oh, that's not bad. Wait, wait. I just seen one now at $33. There you go. Guaranteed it doesn't have a window. I guarantee it. But that's good because through my window, um, on I stayed for two nights. On my last night, I opened it up and there were lots of uh, police cars and ambulances outside. So I don't know what had happened. But if you didn't have a window, you'd never know. Maybe they were afraid you were going to jump. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Michael, just, please. They're just permanently stationed there. Yeah, you know. Exactly. You know, it's just like <laughs> guests check in. They only jump out. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, Michael, on that note, we're going to let Stu go on with his day. Stu, thanks again for another great story. Can't wait to see you soon. Take care. Great. Well, Michael, before we go off gently into that good night, uh, do you have anything at all to recommend? I do. I, I, I have one thing. Uh, uh, speaking of auctions, and this is rolling off of a piece we ran a couple weeks ago by Rich Cohen, and the auction of the Maclow collection at Sotheby's. Now, it's going to happen November 15th, if you don't know about it. It's one of the most important collections of any collecting category to, to go to the open market. It's 65 works in total, all sort of around contemporary and modern art. You've got you've got a Giacometti looking to go for $65 million. You've got a Warhol. You've got a Twombly. You've got um, Jeff Koons, Bryce Martin. But if you're in New York and if you're in the, anywhere near New York between November 5th and the 15th of November, you can see it all at the Sotheby's headquarters where they do a preview. So I would highly recommend you do it, take a walkthrough of the exhibit because a lot of this stuff most likely will fall into private hands and not be seen again. So it's a chance to see some of the most important art of the 20th century. And look, it's coming as as, as a result of the Macula divorce, but you know, their breakup is is your temporary gain if you can get there and take it all in. Yeah, it's like too much for the Macklow wing of the Met, you know, or MoMA or Guggenheim or whatever. But, you know, we'll just see it at Sotheby's for three days. It's perfect. Great outcome, guys. Well done. And you, my dear? Uh, I'm loving this new drama series that's streaming on Netflix. It's called Made. Have you seen this? You know who loves Made is my mother. Does she? Barbara. Yes. Once again, Barbara and I are on the same page. Yeah, it's great. It's it's inspired by the memoir of Stephanie Land, which came out about a year ago. It's called uh, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. 
And it stars Margaret Qualley, and Andy McDowell is also in it. And Andy McDowell is Margaret Qualley's mother in real life and her mother in the series. But it follows a young woman who is a mother. She's got a small toddler daughter uh, as she tries to start a new life for herself after leaving a home situation that was plagued by violence or the threat of violence. And yes, it's a drama series, but it also has some really funny moments. It's not like a strict downer of a show. Um, Margaret Qualley is such a good actress. We loved her in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and she really shines here. I mean, this is her first, I think, really true leading role. And she's just marvelous. She plays this character with such subtlety and humor and verve. You know, the award season is calling for Margaret Qualley on this show, and it's just incredibly well done and really enjoyable. Great. Check it out. You know, you and my mother, it's uh, the only recommendations I need. There you go. Great. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us on Morning Meeting. We will be back next Saturday with another episode. And Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? I will. I'm just going to read out and then go sit in the pumpkin patch and wait for the great pumpkin with Linus. So I invite you all to see. Happy Halloween. If you see Michael in the village, people run in the other direction. Oh, oh. all right. He is not He is not sharing his Reese's with you this year. Just kidding. I just always think of uh, Pigpen when he had the, when he was going as a ghost and just the, the cloud of dust walking around. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for listening.